This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and welcome to the Saturday edition of the best of Fight Back from the week that was. We're learning how difficult and horrible it was for many residents of long-term care homes this past spring during the height of the pandemic when so many elderly and frail people were dying after contracting COVID-19. Some of the testimony at an independent inquiry has been heartbreaking. One resident in a Toronto nursing home described it this way. Now when I see those dog cages on TV for stray animals, I see myself as one of these neglected, filthy, and starving-for-love-and-affection little critters. Libby Snymer spoke with our Monday Zoomer squad about these harrowing stories. She was joined by David Kravitz, Vice President at Zoomer Media, and Bill Van Gorder, CARP's Acting Chief Policy Officer. I think these stories are important because anything that puts the personal the personal into the picture as opposed to the statistical is very, very valuable. I mean, the statistics are what we talk about a lot. We should, because the big numbers is what gets attention and what forces the politicians to uh, maybe react. But at the end, it's a series of individual tragedies in a system that should have done better. There was no reason uh, for many of these deaths, and there was certainly no reason for for the neglect along the way. So, you know, doubly harrowing. And I think these stories are vitally important in in uh, getting the attention of the policymakers as to where we go from here. I kind of get a sense that it was so front and center for so many months. Uh, I have a sense now that it's it's kind of not... It's it's not being heard in the midst of all the noise and, and the latest developments, you know, between the second wave and the U.S. election. I, am I uh, being uh, overly pessimistic about this, Bill? I don't think so. Uh, it's almost like it's becoming normalized. When you hear this kind of thing for a long time, you begin to get uh, used to it. And, and uh, I think that's part of the uh, Problem. We, you know, when we heard the the testimony using words like lonely, muzzled, trapped, depressed, as David said, that's what starts to bring it home again. I think we had had forgotten, and all we were looking at was numbers and not realizing the effect that it had on those uh, who were still alive in our uh, in our long term care facilities. You know. We do know. We've 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 known for for years. All the experts tell us that the two things that are important to keep older people alive and functioning, uh, both medically and physically, is they have to be active physically and they have to be active mentally. And both of these have been taken away from uh, our uh, older adult friends and relatives living in in long care who. Uh, you know, uh, under regulations that were so-called for their own protection, but were so draconian uh, that they caused this kind of uh, kind of result, and we become inured to it. And we—that's uh, why it's so important that we hear these real stories 
from real people. The restriction is on people who are actually just visiting, but they're saying every person in long-term care can have two designated caregivers and those people can come and go as they wish. Well, I think I think it's important um, uh, to put this. Uh, I'm, I'm struggling for some perspective here, quite honestly, Libby, because we've every week it seems there's a new rule, there's a regulation, and we're we're, we're being asked to make sense of a constantly changing landscape. I do feel they are trying to be responsive to what. Uh, uh, it seems like the best plan at any given moment, given the state of infections, medical knowledge, treatment, and so on. We did have quite a long time, I remember, several weeks on this show, where there was a complaint about not being allowed more than uh, one visitor and caregivers not being allowed. And I remember a couple of callers where they themselves had mobility problems in visiting their loved ones, and they needed the caregiver to help them get in and out. So anything that is a bit more responsive to the real needs of uh, the folks, I think, is good. But I think we also have to recognize that the landscape is changing so quickly and the policy announcements are coming so thick and fast that, uh, you know, today's story may be uh, tomorrow's memory, frankly. And uh, I think they're trying, but I, I, I can't definitively say this is the right answer and there isn't a better way that they might find tomorrow. David Kravitz, vice president at Zoomer Media, and Bill Van Gorder, CARP's acting chief policy officer. They were in conversation with Libby on Monday. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. We learned of an unsettling change in COVID-19 contact tracing protocol this past week. Toronto Public Health staff are now only getting in touch with contacts of infected people who contracted COVID-19 in high-risk settings. Otherwise, infected individuals are responsible for letting their contacts know that they've contracted COVID-19. At the same time, daily tests have increased dramatically with a huge backlog in getting results. Libby spoke to these issues on Monday with Dr. Matthew Miller, infectious disease expert at McMaster University in Hamilton, and Dr. Andrew Morris, infectious disease specialist at Sinai Health System and University Health Network in Toronto. At least in the greater Toronto area, we have a pretty substantial rise in cases. Um, It's to the point where it's overwhelmed our testing system's capacity, and it's now overwhelmed our public health response capacity in terms of being able to contact, trace, and then get those contacts to self-monitor, isolate, and possibly even get tested. Dr. Miller. Yeah, no, the the turnaround time in, in testing is a major ongoing concern. And, and the implications of that, I think, have, have been exacerbated by um, return to school because now, obviously, we're entering uh, the time of year when there's a lot of other seasonal infections that are not associated with coronavirus. And children who experience symptoms uh, and, and then need to uh, have coronavirus testing before returning to school 
um, are also experiencing major delays, which has knock-on effects for their parents and caregivers, of course. And so it's, it's, uh, it's really essential that the, that the turnaround time for these tests be, be much, much better than, than what we're currently experiencing. Uh, Dr. Morris, is that something that's doable? Well, I think in the, in the summer, it was a money issue. I think now the challenge we have is um, there are many factors involved in having these tests get performed. That includes having assessment centers staffed, having the transportation for the specimens, having the reagents and the other materials for the test, and then having uh, trained um, technologists um, in the laboratory facilities in places where they also have more machines that need to be purchased with additional space for storing the specimens. So there are many steps along the way that are creating challenges for being able to ramp this up. We've moved into a stage where for the foreseeable future, I think it's very unlikely, um, given the daily increases in cases, that that public health is going to be able to return to the type of detailed contact tracing that was possible when case numbers were low. And so as a consequence of that, in order to get things back under control, it's going to require a massively disciplined, concerted public effort to, you know, put our mindsets back to where we were in the spring. I think one one really useful thing that, that people should be encouraged to do uh, where possible is to download uh, the COVID tracing app that the government uh, has put out, because at least that's one way um, to be able to disseminate warnings of, of potential exposures in the absence of public health directed contact tracing. In terms of um, the second wave, let's just get a sense: where are we at? Are we are we at the beginning of it? And and do you anticipate that it's just going to build? I, I think that that there's no question that we're we're in the midst of the second wave and. Given the fact that there there haven't been there hasn't been much yet in the way of of meaningful um, increases in restrictions, uh, it's it's only going to grow for for the foreseeable future. As you know, we we have a two week delay um, between any interventions and seeing changes in cases, and so you know we should expect to see many more weeks of increase, uh, which will inevitably make this surpass the first wave in terms of um, the numbers of detected cases. And so um, it's, it's going to be, I think, uh, a challenging um, few months. Dr. Matthew Miller, infectious disease expert at McMaster University in Hamilton, and Dr. Andrew Morris, infectious disease specialist at Sinai Health System and University Health Network in Toronto. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. The health of U.S. President Donald Trump has gripped the attention of Americans and people around the world this past week as he continued his treatment at the White House for COVID-19. While at Walter Reed Hospital in Maryland last weekend, Trump received a number of -of state-of-the-art treatments, including one that's not yet approved. On Monday, he went back to the White House, removing his mask for a photo op outside and staying unmasked as he went inside, even though he was still infectious. Trump's return turned into a campaign ad as he told people not to be afraid of the virus and not to let it dominate their lives. 
even though more than 210,000 Americans have died after contracting COVID-19. If nothing else, this episode underscores the difference between our two nations, where here in Canada, politicians of different parties agree on the same messaging. As a matter of fact, a recent poll finds 83% of Canadians agree that Trump's infection will reinforce to Canadians that our country knows what it's doing when it comes to fighting the COVID-19 virus. Joining Libby Snymer on Tuesday, our strategy panel of Charles Byrd, Managing Principal of Ernst Cliff Strategy Group in Toronto, Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, and John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner at Fleischmann Hillard High Road. The one positive news uh, about this is that <clears throat> I think it's going to give him hopefully a different perspective on this. But I think to, to your to your monologue, I think, uh, Libby, with respect to Canadians and how they feel about it, um, I think we have been doing it well. I think we, uh, in huge contrast, have done exceptionally well. Uh, the prime minister has and, and the premiers have. And I think a lot of it is because we were lockstep together with respect to the messaging that we all, every leader, uh, government leader, uh, took took the advice of their health authorities. Uh, and I think it's caused us to be a bit more careful, obviously, and more aware of, of this issue. And we've taken it seriously from the very beginning, where I think in the U.S., we saw that mixed message where the president initially didn't, didn't think it was real. The Democrats didn't think it was an issue from the beginning and then changed their, their view. So there's been this huge mixed mash in the U.S., which has caused that, that issue to be very political there, whereas here it's not as political. In fact, it's not political. Karen, do you think that, uh, you know, when, when we first learned that Trump was sick, we thought this will really hurt his re-election. Uh, do you think he'll be able to turn it around to galvanize his supporters? What do you think? There was a moment in time, Libby, that I thought that could be the case. But the, 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 the cracks of the campaign started to emerge when his, his political staff were saying one thing, and then he was tweeting out the polar opposite. And so I, I believe that there was probably a path to victory out of, out of this occurrence. But with the disparate messages that are coming out and with the unclear uh, message about what, what he wants to say to the American people, I'm not, I'm not really sure. I think, he's, I think uh, it, that, that there was a moment in time that was available to him that he squandered, unfortunately. And his behavior, you know, he's always been reckless and he's always been erratic and he's always been without empathy. That's nothing new. Um, but it, that, that there is always... I think that there was a hope that the nation could look at him now and say, okay, well, here's what I've learned, you know, what Obama used to call the learning moments. But, but he learns nothing. And so it, it, it's, hard to, it's hard to see how, um, with such disarray all around him and now his health in question, how he could possibly pull this out. And listen, a week ago, I, I went full in that he was going to get reelected, and I, I don't see that happening. Um, because, again, his messaging is off. He doesn't know what he wants to say to the American people. To say it's like the flu is just not true. I mean, him telling lies is not new. But, you know, even, you know, no American is going to be convinced it's just like the flu. Uh, Charles. <laughs> the bottom line is it's been a fiasco to watch. I mean, from his debate performance where he corrupted moderator and Joe Biden 145 times to uh, actually contracting COVID after foolishly disregarding all of the norms with regards to social distancing and exposed presumably dozens and dozens of people. I mean, the West Wing of the White House right now is empty because of the number of people who've contracted COVID, presumably 
through their interactions with the president. But the the real, the, the, where the rubber really hits the road is what does this mean for the election? And the election will be decided by a relatively small number of people, some suggest like hundreds of thousands, residing in the 12 battleground states. And the names will be familiar, Florida, Pennsylvania, Ohio, New Hampshire, Arizona. Donald Trump won 10 of 12 of those states in 2016. Um, at the moment, Joe Biden leads, and in a lot of cases, convincingly in 11 of those 12 states. So there's still two presidential debates to go, but it's it's looking like the pathways that Trump has to victory are becoming increasingly narrow, and uh, we'll just have to see what happens. Charles Bird, Managing Principal of Earnscliffe Strategy Group in Toronto, Karen Stins, CEO of Variety Village, and John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road. This is the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. A widening difference of opinion became evident this past week between Toronto's Chief Medical Officer of Health and the provincial experts who advised Premier Doug Ford on the issue of indoor restaurant dining during the second wave of COVID-19. Dr. Eileen Davila has insisted that indoor dining is contributing to the spread of COVID-19 in Toronto, and she's been calling for it to be shut down for a 28-day period. That's how many epidemiologists and members of the Ontario Hospital Association also feel. To discuss the issue, Libby was joined on Tuesday by epidemiologist Dr. Timothy Sly at Ryerson University, James Roulette, Restaurants Canada Vice President for Central Canada, and Derek Vallo, co-owner of Pucka, a restaurant in Toronto. We were fortunate enough to have a, a vibrant business this summer because of the weather, and because of the, the Cafe T.O. program that literally tripled the size of our patio. Uh, to be honest, it was evident that as uh, this cooler weather has descended upon us, um, in our experience, very, very few people are seem to be willing to come inside. We, we really felt that the, the stress of managing guests in, uh, in the dining room um, upwards of maybe 20 or 30 people, because that's all we could have handled. Not to mention, if by chance we did have a positive um, COVID problem in the restaurant or by a guest and had to shut down, we're a small independent, and the public relations nightmare upon reopening would be something that could be devastating to a small operator. So we we decided to to err on, on the side of caution. James, how are your members coming down on this well m- members basically just want to decide for themselves just as, as others have, have made the decision to close down uh not everyone has that uh, ability not everyone has uh, made uh, uh, enough to cover their yearly expenses in the uh throughout the summer uh most have a lot of debt um and they're willing to uh go through the stress of making sure that their, their customers are safe, making sure their staff is safe. And they, they simply have invested a lot in PPEs. They've invested a lot in staff training, and and they want to uh, continue to serve the public. Dr. Timothy Sly, you think indoor dining should be shut down. Uh, what's your case? Well, I think, Libby, that uh, we need to just simply respond to where the evidence is. 
if the evidence shows that it's... Uh, I remember in the very beginning, all the evidence was, was at long-term care homes. That's where all the uh, cases were, hospitalizations and deaths were. Then they moved to the manufacturing. It was the meatpacking plants and the agricultural sector. And in the last couple of months, it's definitely moved to entertainment uh, bars, restaurants, and so on. So the evidence is pointing toward that. We should begin to uh, slow that down because that's... Uh, remember, up till now, we've seen avoidable, essentially, behavioral second wave beginning to increase. And we've got three more levels of that yet to arrive. One is the density as people come inside now because the temperature goes down. Secondly, we've got the elevation of your of your exhaled breath indoors uh, is higher, much higher than the surrounding, which means it lofts higher in the room. For it, it spreads more before it settles. And thirdly, we've got the humidity is yet to arrive. In other words, as the humidity goes down, uh, the particles that we breathe out evaporate more and they float around longer. So we've got three more additional negative problems yeah, just beginning to arrive now. In, in two incubation periods, that's about 28 days, this pandemic would disappear from that community. Just think about that. We could actually squash it. The, the virus doesn't hang around. It doesn't stick to doorposts. It doesn't fly around like a fruit fly. It would just disappear. Now, it's difficult to have a complete lockdown. But hopefully, if we can stop the major area where this is spreading around for a couple of uh, incubation periods, it's about a month, then we might see a suppression of that curve. We can begin to see daylight back again, and very cautiously. Remember, Maritimes have done it already. They're flat. They've been flat for weeks and weeks now. No new cases appearing. A handful here and there. That's it. They, they, you can do it. Even in Canada, you can do it. And other countries that could do it. Australia went into their huge second wave, and they've brought that right back down to essentially zero again. So it can be done within a finite period of time. Let's aim for that. Epidemiologist Dr. Timothy Sly at Ryerson University, James Roulette, Restaurants Canada Vice President for Central Canada, and Derek Vallot co-owner of Paca, a restaurant here in Toronto. They were in conversation with Libby on Tuesday. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio. Here are some of the best calls of the past week. Barry in North York phoned with his opinion on whether restaurants should be shut down temporarily to curb the spread of COVID-19. I like the idea, the premier saying that he wants to make sure he doesn't want to ruin people's lives. It shows that he cares about the people, um, but maybe he should be talking to Dr. Sly because he has evidence that uh, this, uh, this will spread. And the thing is, I hope he makes a decision faster than he made the one for nightclubs, because I think he should have done that a week before. Because if we don't get a handle on it now, it's going to get worse. And the thing is, you think about the economy, but if you don't do it now, then you're going to have to shut it down each time, each day that goes by, um, the economy is going to suffer because we're going to have to do more drastic things. We're in a war, and the the enemy is, is epidemic, and we've got to fight it. We've got to kill it some way. We would just have to do it. Danny in Scarborough called with his concerns about attending funerals during the pandemic. It's almost impossible to go to a funeral and quarantine for 14 days before you visit anybody when funerals are usually over within a matter of a few days. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. 
There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week comes from June in Mississauga, who is feeling isolated as a result of what she sees as contradictory rules around COVID-19. I was going to go to my son's, but I don't drive those distances anymore. So my son's going to come by on Sunday for an outside visit and drop off some food. But my biggest complaint is about outlets for seniors that live alone. I belong to the Mississauga Senior Center, and I used to go there five days a week for activities. Uh, Exercise classes got cut in March. Then I managed to exercise for September. Then I got booted out of the class because they cut them back to 10. And my problem is when they're making decisions to government, it's a generalized thing. Like, I don't understand if we were in a senior centers with all precautions and seniors are twice as cautious as anybody else. Why all of a sudden now I'm cut to sitting in the house again looking outside. That does it for today's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby and have your say anytime on our Fight Back voicemail at 416-367-9636. 367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Nimer. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.